Our first scripture reading is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 16, verse 4 to the 21st verse, followed by Exodus 31, verse 2-32, is found on page 67 of the Old Testament Bible. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people should go out and gather enough for that day. In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you should know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then in the morning you should see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and your fill of bread in the morning, because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him, what are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say no, say to the whole congregation of the Israelites. Draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked towards the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I've heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quills came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine, flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each of you needs. An omer to a person according to the number of persons, or providing for those in own tents. The Israelites did so, some gathering more, some less. But when they measure it with an omer, those who gathered much had nothing over, and those who gather little have no shortage. 
to gather as much as each of them needed. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms, worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it as much as each needed. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. It's verses 31 to 32. The house of Asia called it manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the law has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout the generations in order that they may see the food with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Our second scripture reading is taken from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 to 11, followed by 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 10 to 11. This is found, this is found on the New Testament section of the Pew Bible on page 86 and 252. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were enticed and led astray to adults that could not speak. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, let Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of services, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another fifth by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the, same, by, by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the discernment of spirits, to an, another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are activated by one and the same spirit who allots to each one individually 
just as the Spirit chooses. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies, so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and forever. Amen. Thank you, Solomon. Simon, could you just, sorry to be a pain, can you flick the last slide back up, the 1 Peter verse? I was just sitting there listening to these words. Um, Whoever speaks must do as one speaking the very words of God. So no pressure this morning then. (laughs) Thanks, Simon. You can turn it off again now. Thanks, mate. Gift giving is a funny business, isn't it? I mean, it's an incredibly commercialized and profitable business, that's for sure. In many ways, something as wholesome as expressing gratitude, love, or commemorating an event has become complicated, meaningless, and often fraught. It can also be a rewarding activity. You don't know how you'll impact someone by your thoughtfulness, or your compassion, or your action. It can also be hard to receive gifts, particularly if it's something that you don't want or have no real use for. We've all been handed that gift and then watched expectantly as we unwrap or open it, only to have to pull that, wow, thank you so much face. In a short video on YouTube, a chap called Adam, who produces a series called Adam Ruins Everything, quite literally ruins the concept of giving a gift when you don't know what the other person wants. He calls this the economics of giving. In short, everything we have purchased has a combined economic value. If we added up everything in this room right now, we'd have a total sum that describes its value in monetary terms. But value is also dictated by how much we prize something. So something that might only be worth 50 pounds in monetary terms, we might actually want to value it at around 100 pounds to acknowledge its worth to us is more than purely financial. This also works when valuing items which are scarce. The problem with giving gifts to people is that we can't account for what they'll actually find valuable. In Adam's video, he ruins a present that is given from one person to another when he asks how much the gift was worth to the person receiving it, compared to the cost paid for it. In that example, a t-shirt was bought for 50 American dollars, 
but the receiver of the gift only valued it at $15. Just like that, $35 disappears off of the value of the t-shirt. Giving and receiving presents is further complicated by the unspoken social norms that we're familiar with. In the sitcom The Big Bang Theory, the character Sheldon is sent into a panic when his neighbor Penny tells him that she's bought him a present for Christmas. He responds by saying, Penny, I know you think you're being generous, but the foundation of gift giving is reciprocity. You haven't given me a gift, you've given me an obligation. And perhaps because of this obligation, gift giving is now fairly common. It's certainly become part of our common consciousness. Many of us might resonate with the uncomfortable feeling of putting five pound in an envelope at work to chip in for a birthday present or leaving gift of someone we hardly know or perhaps hardly like. And did you know that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of videos online that capture the gift-giving and receiving process. It's awkward and weird, and I don't really know where this bizarre voyeurism came from. But whilst preparing for this sermon, I enjoyed a highly unproductive and slightly alarming 10 minutes of watching children throw tantrums over being given the wrong presents. It's all a big farce. It was set up um, by a comedian in the US encouraging parents to buy their children gifts that they knew they wouldn't watch and then film their reactions. It's quite entertaining. There's also a really sweet moment where a little girl is adamant that she's really excited about being given toothpaste. Um, it's, it, that is the kind of the counter to the slightly terrifying tantrums that were also thrown. So-called influencers that dwell in online spaces such as Instagram are also increasingly publishing their Amazon wish lists so that fans, followers, and the probably over-friendly can click on the link and ensure their current idol receives exactly what they want, just because. It's also increasingly becoming common to expect gifts at times when gifts weren't previously given and with higher price tags, whether that's cash or sentimental value. There's big pressure on gift giving and gift receiving, and that's the same in a church context as well. Every Sunday in churches around the world, there's an expectation of giving. Plates are passed from pew to pew, or baskets are left at the doors. And now, even contactless machines are in place to take card payments. We use the language of tithing giving back to God what God has given us, giving so that others may receive, and it goes on. But why do we do it? Why do we give our money and our time and other forms of resource? Over the last two weeks, Dawn and I have led you in a contemplation of two of the key pillars of the Christian faith lived out. Obedience to God and the relationship between leadership and discipleship. And this week I'm going to end our mini sermon series by exploring the concept of gifts and what, if anything, is our responsibility to be good stewards of all gifts, whether they come wrapped or otherwise. 
When I was growing up, the language around tithing in church was fairly standard and lent towards the authoritarian, i.e. the belief that there was a good scriptural foundation to mandate that everyone should tithe 10% of their income, regardless of employment status, age, or even any real ability to do so. And there are numerous pa passages from the Hebrew scriptures that support such a mandate, many of which I was very familiar with during my teenage years. For example, in Genesis 14.20, Abraham gave a tenth of his war spoils to Melchizedek. In Genesis 28.22, God meets Jacob at Bethel, and in return for promised covenant blessings, Jacob in turn promises a return to God of everything granted him. And then there are several passages across Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, 2 Chronicles, and Nehemiah that detail that a tenth of seed, fruit, and flocks were to be given to the Lord, and also that the Levites received a tenth from the people to support them, who in turn gave a tenth to the chief priest. There are rather a lot of tens. To wrap it all off nicely, Malachi offers a daunting threat of a curse upon all those who did not tithe, but whilst offered a promised blessings to all those who did. The semantics of this giving has been explored by far learned scholars than I, and with an abundance of time that exceeds my limit today. But even a cursory glance of Hebrew scripture seems to heavily support a structure of giving back to God, and we might commonly call that tithing. I then read about half a dozen articles following this research that seems to dismiss tithing altogether as a practice that ought to be forgotten as it was done away with when Christ came with the new covenant. So it might seem that you go all in or you just give up on it entirely. To be fair, one of those articles was written by the Gospel Coalition, so do with that what you will. In our passage from Genesis today, the Israelites are receiving gifts from the Lord. They are in exile and dependent on those gifts to survive, yet their behavior is greedy, ungrateful, demanding. We see them attempt to hoard the gifts, taking more than they need and what was prescribed, even when it causes the food to go bad, and grumble and moan when they think they need more that in fact, death in Egypt would have been better than freedom like this. My favorite part of this passage, and it's one that I've not really noticed before, and I, I smiled to myself as it was read out again this morning, is the image of quail covering the area every evening. It's not something I've clocked before, but there it is in verse 13, a direct response from God when the Israelites moaned that all they had to eat was this manna, this flaky bread, honey substance. It provides a hilarious mental image for me, a mock of slightly bemused looking quail being hunted by ravenous Israelites. In Numbers 11, the quail anecdote is taken to the next level and the narrative is expanded upon when the author writes in verses 18 to 20, and say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not just eat one day or two days 
or five days, or 10 days, or 20 days, but a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, why did we come out of Egypt? Thus spoke the Lord, you will have quail coming out of your nostrils. Who said the Bible was dull, eh? But this brief trip to the exile of the Israelites tells us something important about gifts and their value, that everything comes from God and it should be honored as such. In a society of plenty, whether you yourself have plenty or not, it can be easy to remove God from the equation. Advertising sells, and it has sold us the idea that capitalism solves everything. We don't need God to provide when the world provides everything we could ever need and everything we would ever likely ever not need as well. We are raised to inhabit a world that demands that we take and we take and we take from the environment, from the impoverished who create our budget clothing, from those who need state services when we don't pay our fair share of tax. The list goes on and on. It's a dog-eat-dog world, right? And when our needs are met by next-day delivery, year-round vegetables and fruit that aren't grown to traditional seasonal patterns, and an economic model that favors rich over the poor, is it any wonder that we forget what it's like to value a gift and then want to give back something of equal or greater worth? We are conditioned to expect more and more without having to give anything extra which causes great conflict when we encounter generous and abundant giving from places of scarcity in scripture, the kind of which we find in two kings and the story of Elisha and the widow's oil. And I'm gonna to read to you from, from that story now. Now the wife of a member of a company of prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but a creditor has come to take my two children as slaves. Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? She answered, your servant has nothing in the house except for a jar of oil. He said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not just a few. Then go in and shut the door behind you and your children and start pouring into all these vessels. When each is full, set it aside. So she left him and shut the door behind her and her children. They kept bringing vessels to her and she kept pouring. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. But he said to her, there are no more. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your children can live on the rest. Through that scarcity, 
the single jar of olive oil becomes many. The widow visits her neighbors and seeks out many empty jars. She participates in this act and willingly does so, so that when she comes to pour out her oil as instructed, it keeps flowing and all the jars are filled. God transforms scarcity into abundance through the faithfulness of the widow. As Spurgeon notes, if she borrowed few vessels, she would have little oil. If she borrowed many vessels, they should all be filled and she should have much oil. And this is echoed in the Gospel of John with the miraculous turning of water into wine, Jesus' first public miracle, an example of abundance in face of scarcity. And not just abundance of the necessities, but of the life-enriching fun stuff, like wine too. And again, later in the Gospel of John, where Jesus takes a small amount of bread and fish offered as a gift and invites his disciples to share it out amongst those gathered. Philip is sure that there won't be enough. And I empathize with him here because he is rooted in logistics and careful planning. Even in his wildest plans, he could only just fathom enough food for everyone to have the smallest amount. But Jesus takes that scarcity, that desire for only just enough, and brings about abundance. Of course, the supernatural element here could be explained away. That, inspired by the young boy, everyone brought out what they had and shared it amongst themselves. But given the context of scarcity, isn't that a miracle in itself? Giving when it's all that you have. In our passage from 1 Corinthians, we are reminded that God provides for our spiritual needs as well as our physical, and that this in turn is an expression of gift giving through the Holy Spirit. We might recognize many of these characteristics in our friends gathered here today. Wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues. It's an eclectic list that requires its own exegesis, but regardless of our theology of those gifts, we are to acknowledge that they are given freely by God. And as with the physical gifts, all of these are given for the common good, as it says in verse seven. It's not only easy to hoard quail, I presume, I've not ever tried, but also to stash away that which has been given to us in spiritual abundance as well. I've worshipped in church contexts where gifts are hoarded and kept hidden, where those who are supposedly blessed with the gift of tongues because of their faith are elevated to sacrosanct levels and are kept prized like trophies, whipped out every now and again to boast of their previous successes. I've worshipped in churches where gifts are numerous, but the church is fearful of scarcity, where building, material wealth, spiritual gifts, plenty of time and people, all should produce a hub of faith, buzzing and alive with the presence of God, yet instead they remain fearful, hoarding their gifts, 
well, for a rainy day, I suppose. I've worshipped in church contexts where gifts are used as weapons, where the spiritual gifts described in 1 Corinthians are used against the followers of Jesus to control through fear and guilt. Prophetic voices not being used to con- prophetic voices being used to condemn, not liberate. Wisdom used to scorn, not educate. Tongues used without the gift of interpretation to follow. Bizarrely, in a society of plenty such as the UK, we've largely become a people of scarcity, acting like something big and bad is going to come and take away all that we've quote-unquote earned. That's how our current rhetoric around the welfare system, immigration, and asylum seekers has come from. The fear that enough is never enough. Yet, as people of God, we are called to subvert this. We are called to expect all the empty jars to be filled, for every stomach to be full, for the smallest and most modest item to be shared, for every person to know that they are gifted and honored. We are called to subvert the ideology of scarcity and lean into the mandate of giving, not the giving of a generic sum, nor the giving that is bound in law or practice, but the kind of giving that comes from being disciples of the living God. That giving which we are invited to participate in, not just simply receive or be spectators of. I snuck an extra passage into our reading list for today, as it so aptly captures the sort of community I hope we at Bloomsbury are aspiring to be. In that passage from 1 Peter, we are called to be good stewards of the grace of God. The gifts we have been given are to be given out again and again, be they physical, emotional, or spiritual. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies so that God might be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. We must do all things through the power of God, not fall victim to the specter of scarcity, but lean in to the depths and glorious miracles of enough. We have been blessed. Let us go and bless others. But some of your gifts, Lord, we admit of their neglect. We ask for your forgiveness, for the gift of stewardship over the world and the animals has been so vastly neglected. And now we live in a world where saving it is less important than saving face, and where its leaders seek immediate wealth over the long-term well-being of their people and our planet. Please set our hearts on paths of healing for the environment and all your dear children. We thank you for all the young activists, 
for their work to change the world they will inherit. For all those that have attended the climate strike or have lobbied governments to work on their environmental policies, you give us strength to move mountains. Let us remember that when we feel unable to change our surroundings. We lift up all those dealing with invisible illnesses, for those dealing with mental health problems, dealing with grief, and um, please give us the knowledge on how to help with what we can't see through your faith and compassion. Loving, redeeming, gracious God, please continue to give to the world through your humble servants. In your holy name we pray, amen.